0: Forget the crap online and listen to Science verses. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight. Starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. A quick note. To protect their privacy, the subject's names have been changed throughout this episode.
1: 46-year-old Jennifer Wilson peered out the window of her Virginia home. She watched as a dusting of snow covered the yard. While the neighborhood kids hoped for school to be canceled, Jennifer prayed that her 23-year-old son, Chris, would find a warm place to sleep that night.
0: She described him as the perfect child. He was a wonderful older brother. He would graduated from high school with honors. He was even the star of the football team. But when he'd left for the University of Virginia, everything had changed.
1: Chris began calling Jennifer all hours of the night. He claimed people had been making up stories about him. His professors were out to get him. The FBI was following him. And it wasn't long before he became suspicious of his own mother.
0: In between his episodes, Chris recognized that he should take a leave of absence from school. So he moved back home. But in March 2017, his delusions escalated into erratic and inconsolable behavior. Jennifer had no choice but to hospitalize her son. After two
1: weeks, Chris was discharged. But things only got worse. He refused to see another psychiatrist. He no longer took his medication. His symptoms drove him to move out of his mother's home and live on the streets of Virginia, Months passed before Jennifer heard from her son again.
0: She eventually learned that Chris had been staying at a homeless shelter in Arlington. But the residency was only temporary. Chris had spent only a few nights there, and then he was back to living on the streets.
1: The Wilsons weren't alone in their experience. Thousands of families all over the country wondered how to keep their loved ones with schizophrenia from homelessness. But without a known cause or cure, the path to recovery is a long and tumultuous road.
0: When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-for-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them.
1: As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle.
0: You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar.
1: At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast
0: Network. This is our fourth and final episode on the history of mental health care we've explored how mental health conditions have evolved over time from ancient greece to today while our medical understanding of mental health has changed there is still a dangerous social stigma surrounding the issue last week we
1: discussed the origins of schizophrenia from dr emil Krepelin's identification of the illness to the treatments and cures that were tested in mental health facilities We also covered the dangerous experimental cures, including forced sterilization. Around World War II, thousands of people with mental health conditions were stripped of their right to conceive in a disturbing effort to end mental health conditions.
0: This week, we'll explain how socioeconomic issues influence mental health. We'll explore the connection between emotional disorders and homelessness, and how U.S. prisons have taken on the role asylums once held. And finally, we'll look at how cultural differences can change a patient's symptoms.
1: On any given night, over 560,000 people in the United States sleep on the streets, and that statistic increases by about 0.3% each year.
0: These numbers can be due to high unemployment rates, a lack of affordable housing, or the massive budget cuts to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. But the most severe contributors to homelessness are mental health conditions.
1: In fact, studies have shown that over 25 percent of the homeless population is living with a mental health issue. And while the connection between homelessness and mental health conditions is nothing new, is rather baffling. Could a cure for schizophrenia end homelessness? Or might it be the other way around? For the last 40 years, medical researchers have been working to understand why this trend is increasing and what we can do to prevent it.
0: The homeless crisis has been brewing in America since the early 1960s. On the heels of the civil rights movement, deinstitutionalization became more common. People with mental health conditions were reintroduced back into society or into federally funded community health centers. Once institutions decreased the number of patients, they closed their doors for good.
1: The government's hope was to offer a more fulfilling life for those who'd been living in understaffed hospitals with inhumane conditions. The scientific community placed more emphasis on the idea of antipsychotic medications, which many believed would lead to a cure and save taxpayer money.
0: But the truth was, many discharged patients had no place to go. Thousands lacked access to medications that could treat their symptoms, and many stopped receiving any kind of care for their mental health condition. While the intentions behind deinstitutionalization were altruistic, It was a failed social experiment with dire consequences.
1: But it wasn't just people with mental health conditions who risked homelessness. In 1996, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act gave each state the power to regulate its own welfare program.
0: Many states lowered the amounts single parents could claim. Then they made it nearly impossible for anyone with a history of substance abuse to receive financial aid. Thousands who suffered from addiction became homeless in the wake of these reforms.
1: University of Pennsylvania professor and homelessness researcher Dennis Culhane dedicated his career to understanding the failures of the mental health system. He found that half of the country's homeless population didn't have access to health care coverage.
0: Many didn't even qualify for federal disability checks, and if they did, they'd only receive about $800 a month. Hardly enough to cover the basic essentials like rent, electricity, heat, and food. Sadly, the solution
1: isn't as simple as giving more money to homeless people. People with mental health conditions can be reluctant or unable to access aid. Oftentimes their difficulties snowball, making it increasingly harder to get their lives back on track.
0: In 2007, Dr. Paulette M. Gillig, professor of psychiatry at Wright State University, did a case study to identify the best ways to engage with a homeless paranoid patient. Her 52-year-old subject, whom we'll call Alice, illustrated how a loss of autonomy led a person with a mental health condition down the path of homelessness.
1: After 20 years of marriage, Alice lost her husband in an automobile accident. Since her husband had been the family's primary breadwinner, Alice had only worked a few odd jobs over the years that made it difficult to find employment. The little money Alice had dwindled. At the same time, she began experiencing intense paranoia.
0: Paranoia is a pattern of thoughts that lead to severe distrust or suspicion of other people. It might also make someone feel like they're in physical danger, even if there's no concrete reason to think so. Paranoid behavior can stem from feelings of vulnerability, isolation, or new stresses in a person's environment.
1: Alice's family believed that her paranoia was brought on by grieving her husband and would fade with time. But Alice had actually been hospitalized and diagnosed with schizophrenia years prior, At the time, her son, who we'll call Paul, was just a baby.
0: Paul knew nothing about his mother's previous hospitalization, nor did he know that Alice had once taken medication for her condition. She hadn't needed her pills for decades, and she believed her schizophrenia was no longer a problem. It wasn't until after her husband's death that the symptoms returned. A
1: person with schizophrenia who experiences abuse, uses drugs, or has recently suffered a loss, like the death of a loved one, might see their symptoms return. But since we don't understand the biological roots of the disorder, we can't accurately predict when it will surface. So, Alice and
0: Paul had no way to anticipate this relapse. On top of that, Paul was unaware of the severity of his mother's condition, And it didn't help that Alice lived alone when her symptoms worsened. She became suspicious of the other tenants in her building. She believed that her neighbors were trying to break into her home. She claimed that they were pumping a chemical through the vents of her apartment, causing her inner ears to itch constantly.
1: Soon, Alice's erratic behavior began to disturb the other tenants in her building. This, combined with her inability to pay rent got Alice evicted. She decided her best option was to live on the streets, likely because this was where she felt safest, away from the other people who were allegedly endangering her. Days passed before her son, Paul, even heard about
0: Alice's eviction. When he finally found Alice, she was disheveled and sick from not eating or drinking fresh water. But Alice's suspicions hadn't subsided, she was standoffish, and it took Paul hours to convince her that he was there to help.
1: Paul wanted nothing more for than his mother to get healthy, but bringing her home to live with him wasn't an option. Her symptoms were progressing, and he worried how she'd act around his two small
0: children, which meant Alice had nowhere to go. She was terrified of shelters and believed she'd be poisoned or harmed in such close proximity to strangers. She claimed that all she wanted was a safe place to live, but her condition made it difficult for her to believe any place was safe.
1: That is, until Paul connected her to a social worker who helped her get temporary housing and food stamps. Once Alice felt that she was in a safer place, she became less suspicious of her son and was able to visit doctors. It wasn't long before Alice accepted the fact that her treatments and medications were actually very helpful.
0: Alice had a happier ending than many people with schizophrenia. Sadly, people with mental health conditions often have difficulty finding permanent housing or connecting with social workers. And unfortunately, their suspicion of social programs is sometimes warranted. Some shelters can be more terrifying than the streets. Thanks to underfunding, overcrowding, and callous policies, these supposed havens can sometimes make people's mental conditions far worse.
1: Coming up, we'll look at how some shelters offer fear, not refuge, to America's homeless population. Now, back to the story. On any given night, More than 560,000 people in the United States sleep on the streets. And more than 25% of the time, this is due to a mental health condition. These incurable disorders can make it difficult for someone to pay rent, keep a job, or maintain an ordinary routine. And this can lead to financial issues, lack of government aid, and limited low-income housing. But it could also be the other way
0: around. Some studies suggest that homelessness is traumatic enough to create a mental health condition. In 2011, Professors Guy Johnson and Chris Chamberlain of RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, explored the differences in mental health before and after a person had become homeless. The researchers found that 16% developed a mental health condition after they began living on the streets.
1: Similar results were observed in San Francisco. In 2014, San Francisco public press reporter Evelyn Wang interviewed a 53-year-old woman who'd become homeless after losing her job. After living on the streets, she developed clinical depression.
0: According to Dr. Timothy J. Legg, depression is a mood disorder. It can trigger ongoing feelings of grief or sadness, anxiety, sleep disturbances, and lack of energy and appetite. Genetics, low self-esteem, or a stressful event, like a loss of economic struggles, can all cause depression. Meaning homelessness might be stressful enough for someone to develop the condition.
1: The Canadian Population Health Initiative found that 66% of homeless people experienced suicidal thoughts or depression. And the condition may be harder to treat in the long term. Surviving on the streets can be stressful. And the exposure to drugs, alcohol, and trauma can exacerbate a person's symptoms.
0: For example, in 2004, a homeless man with schizophrenia, whom we'll call Ronnie, lived in Nashville. His sister said his paranoia would not allow him to stay in one place for long. He chose to live on the streets to keep the people the voices warned him of from finding him.
1: One evening, Ronnie's sister received a call. Her brother had been a victim of a targeted attack. He'd been set on fire while asleep on a sidewalk in downtown Nashville. He spent the next six months in a hospital recovering from eight surgeries he didn't have insurance coverage for.
0: In addition, Women in the homeless community, especially those with a mental health condition, are at increased risk for sexual assault. A 1995 study showed that 22% of women with schizophrenia had been raped on the streets. More than two-thirds of them were assaulted more than once.
1: A report by the San Francisco Examiner detailed the ways they adapted... Some wore 10 pairs of pantyhose and bundled layers of clothing just to protect themselves from constant attacks.
0: In theory, these people could find safety in a homeless shelter. But a San Francisco advocacy group called the Coalition on Homelessness found that shelters also have a tendency to heighten symptoms. They found that the facilities were difficult to navigate had poor and unhygienic living conditions, and were extremely uncomfortable.
1: Sometimes, the occupants even threatened their fellow residents, especially those who had a mental health condition. Not to mention, shelter staff were known to provoke occupants they didn't like, just so they had a reason to expel them.
0: Sometimes, shelter required a rigorous admissions process just to secure a bed. For example, a San Francisco woman named Raina claimed that in order to get a cot for one night, she had to arrive at 8.30 a.m. to register, come back at 3.30 p.m. to see what was available, and then return again at 5.30 p.m. to see if she was approved. While this isn't the case for all shelters, it often happens in cities with severe overcrowding.
1: Not only was this process difficult for someone with a mental health condition, it made it incredibly hard for anyone looking to get back on their feet. Interviewing for jobs, going to school, or getting medical appointments all fell by the wayside when a person didn't have a warm place to sleep.
0: The New York Times reported that many shelter residents had an established hierarchy and people with mental health conditions were at the bottom of the food chain. They frequently fell victim to thieves and criminals, especially those who received Social Security checks. They were often violently mugged.
1: Complicating matters, many homeless people with mental health conditions are resistant to even seeking care in the first place. That's because around 12% of the homeless population is also living with a condition called anosognosia.
0: This disorder limits a person's capacity to understand or perceive their own mental health condition. In other words, they can't recognize that their thoughts are disordered or irrational. Anasognosia isn't stubbornness or denial. It's actually a result of changes to the brain.
1: While doctors aren't entirely sure how this condition occurs, they believe it may have something to do with damage to the frontal lobe, where the brain processes self-awareness. That's why more than half of all anosognosia cases occur in people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, conditions which also damage the frontal lobe.
0: Meanwhile, cities have taken unusual, and many would say unhelpful, steps to address the issue of homelessness. They've offered their homeless people one way tickets to a new destination of their choosing.
1: Organizations like San Francisco's Homeward Bound program claim they're helping the homeless. They believe they're offering a fresh start in a new city. But that's not exactly the case.
0: Jeff Weinberg, co founder of the nonprofit Florida Homelessness Action Coalition, said that these programs are. A smoke-and-mirrors ruse tantamount to shifting around the deck chairs on the Titanic rather than reducing homelessness. Once they get you out of their city, they really don't care what happens to you. And in many cases, the person is forbidden to return. Meanwhile, places
1: like New York have taken even more drastic measures. To date, the state has actually flown more than 650 homeless people to foreign
0: countries. Which means many wind up on the streets once again, only now thousands of miles from where they started. And family members are left at a loss, searching for their loved one who may now be halfway across the country. Or, if they're from New York, halfway across the globe.
1: These busing programs claim they make cities safer by lowering crime rates. They cite statistics that suggest homeless people particularly homeless people with mental health conditions, are more likely to break the law.
0: Fred Markowitz, a professor of sociology at Northern Illinois University, wanted to see if there really was a correlation. He compared the number of available psychiatric hospital beds and arrest rates within the homeless population. He theorized that as mental health facilities shut down, crime would go up. And he was absolutely right. But he discovered
1: that many of these incarcerations were due to crimes of survival, meaning people were stealing food or other provisions they didn't have the money to buy. Many arrests were for breaking and entering, just to find a warm place to sleep. Some were for drug possession, meant to manage a person's symptoms, because they didn't have access to proper medication. As a result... Over the last two decades, county jails became some of the biggest mental health facilities in the country.
0: In 2015, investigative reporter Matt Ford ran a story for The Atlantic that shed light on the incarceration epidemic. Nationwide, at least 400,000 inmates have mental health conditions. But Ford turned his focus to Chicago's Cook County Jail, one of the few locations looking to offer incarcerated people with mental health conditions a brighter future. Elliot
1: Patak Montgomery, psychologist and deputy director of mental health at Cook County, explained that one in three inmates at his jail had a mental health condition. Many were arrested for drug possession, but Patak Montgomery could often link their drug of choice back to their undiagnosed condition.
0: For example, people with depression were often caught with cocaine, which is known to be a mood enhancer. Those with hallucinatory or delusional conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder were more prone to use heroin to get better sleep. Cannabis use was common among inmates with a history of attention deficit disorder and depression.
1: Because of the high number of inmates with mental health conditions, Sheriff Tom Dart made conscientious changes to how the prison was run. All incoming staff were required to take 60 hours of advanced mental health training.
0: While it's not exactly clear what that program entailed, Dart's guards were held to high standards. He explained, You have to be a doctor. You have to be a nurse. You have to be a social worker. You have to be all of these things.
1: DART also appointed a new executive director of the facility, Dr. Nika Jones-Tapia, the first clinical psychologist to help run a U.S. jail. She met one-on-one with the inmates to diagnose their conditions. This process also aided in their defense strategy. When it came time for their hearing, she could suggest appropriate alternatives to prison and try to get her patients into long-term treatment.
0: But oftentimes, jail was the only place where the men could get the help they desperately needed, especially when the outside world had already discounted them.
1: One inmate, who we'll call Clark, had been battling a mental health condition ever since his childhood when he'd witnessed his mother's murder. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, then again with bipolar disorder. For years, he bounced from jails to hospitals, then back again, oftentimes for drug-related offenses that he claimed were the only way to
0: manage his symptoms. In 2009, a burglary charge landed Clark in Cook County Jail. There, he finally received the proper medication for his condition. He was released in 2013 with an appointment to meet with a community mental health clinic. But that wasn't for another six months.
1: Clark was forced to stretch out his remaining medication, hoping it would last until he could see the physician. But that didn't go as planned. Before he could make it to the appointment, Clark was arrested again on assault charges, this time for trying to secure illegal drugs that would hold him over until he got his medication. And so the cycle continued
0: for Clark. Clark's story was sadly common. While some inmates in Cook County Jail counted down the days until their release, many of the men in Division II, the informal mental health ward, feared what their reintroduction into society would bring.
1: To fight this, Sheriff Dart collaborated with the Cook County Health and Hospitals System to sign these men up for county care. This was a low-income health insurance program that offered proper treatment and medication after release so situations like Clark's didn't have to be the norm. In fact, the program has helped more than 10,000 people in Illinois so far and is ongoing today.
0: Cook County Jail may have been the least likely place to expect an efficient and humane mental health program, but the therapy regimen had a lasting impact on many lives. Ford interviewed one inmate about the program. He claimed, being chosen, you know, kind of hand-picked for this, it's something that each individual should be beyond happy for.
1: Unfortunately, not all prison systems are as progressive as Cook County. In our last episode, we covered the sterilization programs that started in the U.S. in the early 1900s. But in 2015, the Center for Investigative Reporting found that some prisons in California still performed sterilization procedures on inmates. Approximately 144 female prisoners underwent the procedure between 2006 and 2010.
0: The United Nations deems these sterilizations unlawful, especially in the United States, where they commonly happen without consent. And many of these procedures are performed on people with mental health conditions. But these
1: terrible practices are tied to the harsh reality that we still don't know how to stop some mental health conditions. Since they can't be prevented, some officials resort to brutal methods like sterilization. Without a known cause, there is no cure. And without a cure, there is fear.
0: Coming up, how stigma and cultural differences can actually change mental health condition symptoms. Now, back to the story.
1: In 2015, Chicago's Cook County Jail sought to break the link between mental health conditions and incarceration. They offered inmates proper diagnoses, sympathetic treatments, and medications, and helped get them back on track.
0: This was a step in the right direction, but the problem extended far beyond the doors of Cook County. The World Health Organization found that a quarter of all people living in the United States have a mental health condition. That rate is much higher than the rest of the world. For
1: example, Australia, New Zealand, the U.K., and Canada are around 20 percent while Japan, China, and Nigeria have the lowest, with 6% of their populations living with a mental health condition. So we can't deny that cultural differences shape the landscape of
0: mental health. Ron Kessler, a Harvard professor who worked with the World Health Organization, argued that poorer countries had a lower rate of depression because people were too focused on surviving to develop a mood disorder. He continued...
1: Americans, On the other hand, many of whom lead relatively comfortable lives, blow other nations away in the depression factor, leading some to suggest that depression is a luxury disorder.
0: But that might not be the whole story. It's also possible that poorer countries simply don't diagnose so many mental health conditions because they don't have the infrastructure to identify them
1: depression doesn't exclusively correlate with wealth. After all, Japan has a flourishing economy, but also has low rates of depression. So maybe the issue has less to do with economics and more to do with Western culture. Perhaps American and European values like individualism and competition create the sorts of stressors that trigger mental health conditions.
0: Global connectivity aided by social media may spread harmful Western ideals. In 2018, a study from the University of Pennsylvania found a direct link between social media use and depression and loneliness.
1: The study surveyed 143 students and measured their social media habits over three weeks. Those in the control group, who kept their social media use under 30 minutes a day, displayed better mental health in the long run. The other group, whose use wasn't limited at all, experienced more anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, and less autonomy.
0: The rise of social media may explain why global depression rates have increased between 2005 and 2015. But the World Health Organization also attributes this to an aging global population, especially since older adults have an increased risk of depression. Aging is a stressful process, especially in individualistic societies like the United States. If a person can't afford to retire or worries about how they'll treat age-related health issues, their stress levels go through the roof. In turn, this may trigger a new mental health condition.
1: In contrast, numerous studies sponsored by the World Health Organization indicated that collectivist cultures show lower rates of depression, perhaps because people can rely on their communities to support them through difficult times.
0: But mental health conditions exist all over the world. While depression may sometimes be rooted in circumstance, disorders like schizophrenia have no known definitive cause. This also makes it hard to pinpoint exactly who is at risk. Even more mysteriously, a patient's geographical location and culture might shape the way they experience their symptoms.
1: Auditory hallucinations are the most common symptoms of schizophrenia. These hallucinations can trigger paranoia, as the person sometimes believes the voices are watching, threatening, mocking, or endangering them. But in 2014, Stanford anthropologist Tanya Lorman noted that these aggressive voices were unique to the Western world.
0: She and her colleagues spoke with 60 adults who'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Some patients were from the United States, some were from Ghana, and others were from India.
1: Lorman explained, We asked the participants whether they knew who was speaking, whether they had conversations with the voices, and what the voices said. We asked people what they found most distressing about the voices, whether they had any positive experiences of voices, and whether the voice spoke about sex or
0: God. Americans with schizophrenia reported that their voices were hateful, torturesome, and even asked them to self-harm. But Lerman discovered that people from Ghana and India had a predominantly positive association with their voices—
1: These people with schizophrenia reported that their voices were playful, sweet, and entertaining. Sometimes they acted like family or friends, offering advice and support. The complete contrast didn't make much sense until Lerman looked closer at her subjects' cultural differences.
0: Lerman and her team recognized that people from the United States, a more individualistic nation, valued self-identity and independence— So the voices were perceived as intrusions, threats to the self-made mind. But
1: countries like Ghana and India tended toward collectivism. Unlike the Americans, Indian and Ghana people with schizophrenia were more likely to believe in spirits, which is why the voices often resembled someone they
0: had lost. Ironically, this ties back to the ancient Greeks from part one of the series. Although we can't say for sure if any of them had schizophrenia, the ancient Greeks with mental health conditions also believed they were making contact with another plane of existence. For example, Socrates believed he was hearing the benevolent voices of the gods. His condition was a gift, something that helped him.
1: Like Socrates, the modern-day patients who interpreted the voices as spirits of loved ones were less likely to perceive the hallucinations as a threat. Instead, they engaged in pleasant
0: conversations. Based on this, Luhrmann came to another discovery. The disturbing voices associated with schizophrenia in Western culture could probably be changed. Maybe she could shape the narrative around the disorder and alter the way the patient perceives their voices. Then they'd have the tools they needed to manage their disorder. Lurman tested this
1: theory with one of her patients. A 20-year-old man from the Netherlands changed his relationship with schizophrenia, or more specifically, with his voices. When they threatened him, Luhrmann urged him to reason with them.
0: After heeding her advice, the patient claimed that the voices changed. They offered him kindness, and his schizophrenia became more bearable than it had been before.
1: While it's no cure, Lerman's experiment changed the way we understand schizophrenia. But there's still no concrete explanation for what causes the condition.
0: Doctors surmise that a combination of genetic, psychological, and environmental factors might trigger it. And while schizophrenia appears to run in families, researchers have not identified a gene responsible for the disorder.
1: A 2017 Danish study estimated, based on a study of identical twins, that the heritability of schizophrenia is around 79%. These rates are too low for genetics to be the sole cause.
0: Another potential factor may be an excessive level of dopamine in the brain. Dopamine controls behavior, emotion, and cognition, primarily in the frontal lobe but high levels of dopamine can cause anxiety, difficulty sleeping, mania, and more.
1: Pregnancy and birth complications might also play a role. Babies who are born prematurely, underweight, and who don't receive enough oxygen due to birth complications have an increased chance of developing schizophrenia once they hit their teenage years.
0: Scientists have also found that large ventricles, or spaces in the brain, are also correlated with schizophrenia. And the medial temporal lobes, or the parts of the brain that store memory, are much smaller on average in people with schizophrenia.
1: There have even been studies linking schizophrenia to an autoimmune disease or exploring whether the father's age at the time of conception has an effect or if taking mind-altering drugs as a teenager could heighten a person's risk but all of this remains speculative for the time being.
0: Science has yet to unravel this mystery. Until a cure is found, the best we can do is empathize with and support those who have a mental health condition. And remember that treatment takes a lot of patience and time.
1: If you know someone with a mental health condition and want to help, the National Alliance on Mental Health offers a few suggestions. Talk to that person in a space that feels comfortable to them. Ease into conversations gradually and keep the tone relaxed. Show respect and compassion and be sure to listen. Give the person hope for their recovery and offer words of encouragement whenever you can. Putting an end to the stigma may be the first step to finding a cure.
0: Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries.
1: You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify.
0: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast Originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on
1: Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Lori Gottlieb with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.